This is Power Lunch, an hour to talk lightning hockey, the NHL, and how you're coping with the coronavirus, exclusively on Lightning Power Play via the iHeartRadio app. Center point, Hedman, right to go, Kudrop. Score! Hedrick Kudrop! On this Monday edition of Power Lunch here on Lightning Power Play, Dave Mishkin along with Steve Versnick, who is putting all of this together, and Eric Erlinson from lightninginsider.com and also Lightning Power Play. A regular contributor is Eric on this station. And we're going to have Eric on for the full hour as soon as he connects. He's having a little technical trouble joining us like as of one minute ago, but I see he's coming on right now. But we did want to have Eric on for the full 60 minutes because there's a lot to talk about and this is only half the overall agreement because the league has reached a tentative agreement on the return to play which is essentially the 2019-2020 season into the playoffs and then the Stanley Cup but they also have to put the finishing touches on the extension of the CBA which is also going to be voted on, that part has not yet been completed prior to going to the Board of Governors and the players themselves to ratify. But we do have the information out about the return to play, so we wanted to break all of that down. It looks like Eric is with us. How are you, Eric? I'm good, Dave. How are you? Good. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> yes, of course. Well, there's so much to talk about. I got out my notepad and I was reading online all of the different particulars, not even all of the different particulars, the thumbnail sketch bullet points of some of the items in this document that's 40 pages of legalese. So thank goodness we had people breaking all of this down for us. And I filled my notebook, one page of of different items. So I figure we have a lot to talk about. here today so let's get right to it and we'll get to the cba part later and i have a couple of other items to get to later that are separate or or just peripherally connected to this return to play document and i have no particular order here i just have these items so let's let's kind of discuss them as as i have them written down So the first thing I wrote down was 52 individuals. Originally, we thought it was going to be 50, and that was something we heard actually on this program from Mark Lambert, the Lightning's strength coach, and he mentioned in passing, we're we're allowed to bring 50. It's, It's going to be 52. And no more than 31 of those 52 individuals can be players. So... The teams have options on how they want to break that down. I guess there's no limit on the number of goalies, but but my hunch is you're probably looking at 28 skaters and three goalies. If if it's more than that, I guess teams can choose that, but I would be surprised if a team brought four goalies and they would rather have as many skaters as they possibly can. So no more than 31, which means that you have 21 spots left and you have to include one physician, one security representative, one phase four compliance officer, and I'm presuming that's somebody within your organization, one content creator slash social media member. So somebody who's gonna be kind of the conduit to the outside world, 
in addition to to some other minimums that you need, and then you can kind of fill in the gap. I saw three coaches, minimum three coaches. Well, most teams are going to be bringing more than three coaches. So that's part one of this, which is a total of 52 with a maximum of 31 players and then minimum numbers for some other categories. And then you can kind of fill in the gap from, let's say, 43 to 52. Yeah, it'll it'll be interesting to see how this is all broken down in terms of how teams do it, how different teams do it, how many coaches do you want to bring. We know the Lightning have four on the bench plus Franz Jean, uh, who is the eye in the sky and the goalie coach as well. So how do they want to? Are they going to bring all of their coaches? I would have to think so. That number would be included in there. To me, the breakdown though, the interesting breakdown is always going to be on the players who they bring to the bubble. We know that they can bring more to training camp. Um, you know, to whenever that starts, hopefully by next week maybe one week from today is the date that's kind of been out there uh, uh, and from a lightning standpoint you would have to think you need a minimum three goalies right so we know Andre Vasilevsky yeah. Curtis McElhaney and most likely Scott Wedgwood would be the three goalies that they would bring depending on how things kind of break down but then how do you how do you figure out the 28 skaters that that to me is the very difficult part for the lightning we know how much depth they have you know where there's a guy like Corey Conacher if he even plays um, fits in? Where does a guy like Luke Wachowski fit in? Where does Alex Barry Boulay fit in? There's so many questions with who the Lightning are going to bring from a player standpoint because, as we know, and the, the league did release the number uh, of new cases and tests put out today, we now know that uh, there have been 23 total players that have tested positive since Phase 2 began out of 326, if my memory serves me correct, and, and over over 29 conducted tests. So that's a pretty low number in terms of positivity rate. You know, but there's there's probably the likelihood that you're going to have a player or two uh, once you get to the bubble city, maybe have a situation where if nothing else, they have to isolate. And so you need players. You're going to need a good uh, number of players to bring with you that you think can contribute to your team. So for me, that's the big thing that I'm going to look for is what players are they going to bring into this bubble and how much of that is going to be determined by training camp let's say it's 28 skaters and three goalies this was a topic that greg and i kicked around a little bit before he left for his trip to pittsburgh and greg will be back next week by the way so you dress 20 18 skaters and two goalies so let's take the goalies out for a second so you have 18 skaters which means that you have 10 extra skaters at the start of this tournament. And again, this is presuming that you're bringing 28. What I wonder is for the teams that are going deep and you may be playing seven, eight weeks in high level, high intensity games where players can get hurt. And you may also have to deal with, hopefully not, but you may have to deal with some players who are out because of illness COVID-19 related. Do you think 10 is enough? <laughs> and if 10 is not enough, what's going to be the situation? Are you going to be allowed to bring new players in, assuming they follow the protocol? And the protocols are kind of spelled out for players who are entering the bubble. Let's say that they had to leave for medical reasons or family emergency or whatever. There, The protocols account for players who who are allowed to leave and then what they need to do to come back in but what do you do in that situation 
because you can have more players within your organization theoretically come in, but they're not going to be in any kind of condition to contribute because they have not been working out and have not had the opportunity to go through all of these other phases that that the players are going through right now. So it may be a far-fetched, but I don't know. If you have a rash of injuries and some players who are out due to illness, could you be playing the Stanley Cup final shorthanded? Well, certainly that possibility exists, but I, I wouldn't wonder, too, because we know that you can bring more than just those 31 players to training camp. So in that aspect, do you have a quote-unquote black aces group like we typically see during the playoffs, maybe remain in Tampa, remain in okay. the arena? Maybe they work out with Ben Mar- I have not seen anything come out about that. I haven't seen any language to say that that's a possibility. I would have to think it could be um, because, uh, you know, 10 extra players, that seems like a lot, but we also know – I mean, we don't know. These players have been off – uh, out of competition now for four months. It'll be close to five months by the time they finally get back onto the ice and start some, playing some games at the, you know, the first weekend of August there. Do muscle issues come up? That's a possibility. We don't normally see that too much with hockey players because we know how well they do keep themselves in shape, but it's a possibility after being off for so long. And then you do have the injury aspect, and then you have this wild card of if somebody tests positive for COVID, and we won't know it because they're not going to release the information, um, you know, if somebody has to sit out and isolate for four or five days, that could potentially be two or three games. So do you have enough players in reserve? I would have to think only based on the fact that in part of this language that there are going to be players who are allowed to leave the bubble for family emergencies or a birth of a child, whatever it might be, and then they'll be, they'll be allowed to come back in. So if you could kind of keep that Black Aces group, let's say, here at Amelie Arena or Syracuse, if that's where you want to hold it, um, in, on reserve, just in case you have to come to that, that would be a way to kind of alleviate that situation because, you you know, they've already saying that you can introduce new players uh, into this bubble under the right protocol. So maybe that's something that has to be explored. Maybe that is part of this. We just haven't heard it yet. The next item I wrote down has to do with testing and the numbers of tests that they are going to run. So Edmonton, Edmonton's new arena is right downtown. And I believe the hotel that is going to be utilized for the Western Conference teams is right across the street within walking distance. And also the Edmonton facility has a practice rink within the building. So that can be rather clean. I'm not sure if they're going to need more ice surfaces than the main arena and the practice arena within the building. But Toronto is a different situation. I don't know that the host hotel is going to be within walking distance. And certainly the practice rink that the Leafs use is is a bus right away. So I was kind of just thinking and spitballing about how are they going to bus these 12 teams? And what about the bus driver? And so that question got answered for me anyway, because the testing will include players, staff, officials, the ice crew, security, hotel and arena staff. And that is a wide swath. That's anywhere from bartenders in the hotel restaurant to maids to arena food and beverage that may be provided within the arena to bus drivers. 
And they're expecting upwards of 2,000 daily tests at the start of phase four. And that's the key to all this, I think, right? I, I, I mean, we're seeing what's taking place over in Orlando with the MLS teams. You know, there's a couple of MLS teams that have had a, a little bit of a breakout in players since they arrived from Orlando, not since before they left, since they've arrived in Orlando. Um, and we know, of course, the situation here with Orlando and Tampa among, you know, the highest rising number of cases. Uh, so the key, I think, for the players and to make this a, as safe as an environment as you can to get this plan uh, into action is to test that to me that's been the key all along how are you going to do this testing protocol and we now know that not only are the players and everybody on the staff that's going to be with the team going to be tested on a daily basis they are going to make sure that anybody that they could potentially come in contact with are going to be tested as well um, and to me that's that's how you kind of create this bubble because you know we know the situation in Toronto where it's not like Edmonton, where you don't have walking distance, you don't have a connection to a, a practice rink and a, and a game rink in the same building. We know that this supposed campus, somewhere around Rico Arena, which is where the Marlies play, which is a little bit outside of downtown Toronto, where, uh, what is it, Scotiabank Center or whatever it is <laughs> yeah. called nowadays. I can never keep up with these sponsor names on some of these buildings. But we know that there's going to be a campus, and that's going to be their sort of bubble area, and that is going to include that practice rink. You know, okay, so the campus... The campus is out by the AHL rink, which means that you're going to need a bus to get to the main building. Yes, yes. So, um, but you wouldn't have to do it in theory for practice because it's it's that bubble should include Rico Arena, uh, which has the ice surface there. And then if they utilize the Mastercard Center where where the Leafs actually train, which I would have to think they do. I mean, twelve teams to practice. Um, you know, maybe hold morning skates at that. Uh, at those uh, facilities as well. So, I mean, you're going to have to bus players, but we also do know that, you know, Dave, in, in Toronto, the bus goes down a ramp and it's under the building. So there's there's no access uh, from the outside. The players will be bused right in underneath. Uh, so that is a way to kind of keep them outside the public spotlight because it's Toronto, right? There's you're, yeah. Invariably, you're going to have a situation where there's going to be some people gathering just hoping to catch a glimpse or something of these NHL teams. So that eliminates that sort of situation where they can just kind of go down this ramp and, and be protected from the general public in that aspect. Because, again, I go back to it. If you can't tell the players that you're creating an entirely as safe as possible, you cannot make it 100%, but as safe as possible, then this deal was never going to get done. And I think that the league and the Players Association have come to agreement on a very solid case to protect the players and everybody else as well as they can in this environment. Yeah, I agree. And I think as we go through these bullet points, it becomes clearer and clearer that the league and the Players Association did not put any half measures in here from how they're crossing every T and dotting every I in terms of making sure that the bubble is tight. And we're going to get to this, the penalties that are going to be levied if anybody goes out of the bubble without permission. One thing that we were wondering prior to getting some information about this document was because Bill Daly and Gary Bettman, the commissioner, had said months ago to this question of what happens if if a player tests positive, and their answer at the time was, if it's one player, we're going to isolate that player and we'll just proceed. But that left the door open for, well, at what point do you not proceed? Is it 
five players? Is it 10? Is it 20? Is it X number within one team? And so here's the verbiage that addresses that. The league can call it off, delay, or postpone if conditions present, quote, a risk to player health and safety and or jeopardize, quote, the integrity of the competition. Conditions may include, quote, an uncontrolled outbreak of COVID-19 in players of one or more clubs. So they're not actually producing a specific number. <laughs> like once we hit this number, it's off. They're giving themselves room to kind of assess the situation, but I think they're covering both points well in that phrase. If they determine that there is a significant risk to players, they're either going to stop it permanently or delay it. But also, if you have, let's say, one team that's down eight or nine players and that affects the integrity of the competition, even though most of the bubble is still secure, they also reserve the right to postpone if they feel that one team is not able to field a team, which kind of goes to what we were talking about before. If you have a rash of, of injuries slash illness and you have to bring in somebody who hasn't been who hasn't been competing or a lot of players who haven't been competing at this level. Yeah. And, and, and again, that's, that's key to everything is to just make sure that um, everybody's in this, this safe environment, that everybody is following the protocols. And the only thing we have to go on in terms of what that magic number is, is that the bill daily has been on record, start to kind of think, okay, what is it? Um, you know, what is that magic number? What could it be? And, and again, this is this is if if the players as a whole feel uncomfortable, if there's enough players who feel uncomfortable doing this, there is this trigger. And I, and I think that that, again, uh, is, is protecting both sides on what the environment is going to be. And, and I guess the, the really good news in all this is as or at least as good as you can is we know that Ontario and I've been watching the numbers here the last couple of days, uh, their numbers are going way down in terms of number of cases. And as long as these players are, you know, in this quote-unquote protective bubble, as long as they're doing what they have to do, isolated in their home cities right now, uh, that once they get into Toronto or Edmonton, in this case, we already know Edmonton has been, uh, and Alberta as a whole, has been really good in terms of containing the, uh, any outbreaks in their province, that you're not bringing it in, and they're not going to be potentially exposed to somebody who already has it uh, in this situation. And uh, you know, to your point about the penalties, they're stiff penalties. I mean, there's if anybody breaks protocol, if anybody breaks quarantine in this, the teams are subject to potentially losing draft picks as well as being yeah. fined. And to me, uh, it's probably a good thing they're not in Vegas because of that. Because uh, again, temptations. I mean, we saw last week that uh, there were uh, what a couple of St. Louis Blues players and a coach that tested positive. They shut it, you know, shut their phase two process down for a couple of days, similar to what we saw here. Uh, with the lighting, but, you know, allegedly, and this is just reported on what I'd seen, those players and that coach actually went to a bar, and they think that that might have been where they were exposed to. So, you know, it, you, as the players, I think you just have to be smart and vigilant, and we all want this to happen, and if we want this to happen, the players have to take the responsibility to make sure that they're not putting themselves in a position to where they could potentially be exposed to anything so we can pull this off. Eric Erlinson joining us on this Monday Power Lunch, breaking down best we can the 
tentative agreement between the NHL and the NHLPA for the return to play that was agreed upon yesterday and it kind of got released out into the world and we're we're going through it item by item by the way if you have any questions or comments or want something clarified you can shoot us a message on twitter of course our handle is at bolts radio eric you mentioned the penalties so it reads like this any team that violates rules and protocol be subject to significant penalties potentially including fines and or loss of draft picks. And really you're making the team responsible for its individual players. So if a player makes a bad choice, they are holding the team accountable, which isn't always the case when it comes to player indiscretions. But I think, again, it's a statement about how seriously the league and the Players Association is taking this that if it's an unexcused absence, and of course the player would be subject to being kicked out of the tournament, that one is is probably a slam dunk no-brainer, but also the team itself would face significant penalties, and I'm sure that that message will be drilled home from day one of training camp in phase three, that if we're in this, we're in this 100%, and everybody has to follow the rules. Absolutely. And, and I think that's the way it has to be done. And I think you have to be strict on this because, um, you know, when uh, I can't remember if it was the Premier League or the, the Bundesliga, I think it was the Bundesliga, uh, one of the coaches in the Bundesliga left his hotel because he forgot a couple of things at home. He went to the store to get it. Well, he had to self-isolate himself for 14 days because of that. You don't want that situation. You don't want to put anything because all it takes is one, as we know, to introduce this into this this secured area to create an outbreak. We know how fast it can be um, you know, passed on from person to person. We've certainly all experienced that in, in some way um, here over the past few months that, that, that all it takes is one to create this outbreak. And that's where you have the, the, the person that each team is going to have to bring that makes sure that their job is to make sure everybody's following the protocols. And Part of that is, you know, reading the, the some of the bullet points that players will have their, or their each team will have their own floor, so it's a little yes. bit easier to kind of keep an eye on, if you will, who could be sneaking out the back door. I hate to use that phrase, but that aspect of it, and it, it'd be easier to kind of to monitor that and keep an eye on it. But I would also hope that anybody that is being part of this traveling group for these teams would understand the importance of it. And I think that's why the fines are so stiff. If you if you put out the the very stiff penalty for anybody who breaks this protocol, I think right then and there that gets the message across big time, and then you'll have enough people around, hopefully, to police themselves as well. Similar to Major League Baseball and the NBA, players can choose to opt out of this and not even start up. So the timetable on that has shifted a little bit when the news started breaking yesterday originally players had to express their intent to play or not to play by july 7th that's tomorrow (laughs) so i think that that was maybe the hope that clearly needed to be pushed back so the current language reads they must opt out if they are going to opt out no later than three days after ratification so what that means is first things first they need to 
to put the finishing touches on the CBA extension, which has not yet happened because they want to bundle that with the return to play part of this into one vote. Then it will go to the Board of Governors that will be, in comparison to the player vote, a rather quick vote. They can probably do it in a conference call because you've only got 31 entities, 31 teams. Each team gets a vote. The player vote is going to take longer, though, two to three days because every player does get to vote. For it to be ratified, you just need a majority. So from the point that it's ratified, the clock starts. And if you are going to opt out as a player – you have three days. And it sounds like if the timing is going to follow the course that a lot of the people that I'm reading think it's going to follow, if they can get the CBA extension done today, by the time we get through the vote and the ratification, and then three days, you're kind of looking at a week from today, the 13th, which is when they wanted the camps to start. So it would be a nice point where – you have until camp starts if you're going to opt out. What do you think that number is going to look like? Well, I, I think that we would be naive to think that nobody will opt out of this um, outside of medical conditions. We know Max Domi yeah. in particular, Corey Conacher as it relates to the Lightning, they both deal with diabetes, and we know that diabetes is a high risk uh, in, in contracting um, the coronavirus. So uh, outside of the medical, I, th- I think we'd be naive to think that somebody won't drop out. I mean, we've seen a number of baseball players. I just saw um, the MVP for MLS who plays for uh, LAFC has opted out of the MLS tournament. So uh, to me, th- this is my biggest question when it comes to uh, those who might opt out. We know, uh, Dave, and you know as well, that hockey is a very tight-knit locker room. It's a lot of chemistry. There's a lot of cohesion. There's a lot of camaraderie. There's a lot of this is the team concept. You need to buy into it. If somebody steps out that team concept, sometimes they're a little ostracized or they're judged or they're questioned, why are you doing this? So my question is, if you have somebody who, say, is the 12th, 13th, 14th forward on a team's depth chart, and he says, you know what, I don't feel comfortable, that is going to be viewed a lot differently than, say, an all-star type player. If an all-star player opts out, and I just read this too, if Mike Trout uh, for the Anaheim Angels has concerns and he has expressed them and he's voiced them many times throughout this process, even though he is working out with the Angels, if Mike Trout, it's one thing for uh, David Price, who was a big name to drop out for the Dodgers, if a Mike Trout dropped out, what would that do for the rest of the quote-unquote rank and file? I, I view it the same way in hockey. If a big-name player drops out I wonder how many might more follow suit as opposed to somebody who doesn't have as big a name recognition to them but I would have to think at some point we are going to find out that there's going to be a handful of players who aren't going to feel comfortable with this and they are going to opt out this season so if you read the tea leaves correctly or if I'm reading you correctly and how you read the tea leaves it is that there are some players that may have concerns but those concerns would be offset by wanting to go along with the crowd because that's the yeah. culture and the sport. But if yeah, somebody it's, it's... does break rank, then we may see those players that have concerns because not all players do have these concerns. But the right. ones that do may f- feel freed up to break ranks. Yeah, exactly. It's it's 
you know, it's like when you're in school and, and uh, you know, the popular kid does something. Everybody kind of follows suit. They want to do the same thing or they feel more comfortable because somebody who is more popular does it. And I'm not turning this into a popularity contest, but there's no doubt that there's a big difference. And I don't, I don't want to throw any names out there just out of speculation, but it, there's a big difference between if an all-star player decides to opt out and a third or fourth line guy who plays seven, eight, nine, maybe ten minutes per game opts out. There's a big difference in uh, not in their importance to the team, but in name recognition. And you know, you know how we view it. If if somebody higher on the depth chart opts out, maybe maybe my concerns don't feel as outside now. Maybe they're yeah. a little bit more accepted because somebody does that. I, that's what I'm really curious to see if we get any situation like that. But I just can't see a scenario where it's a 100% participation outside of health reasons. We're halfway through today's show and we have a lot more to cover. So we'll take a quick break and come back with Eric Erlinson, Dave Mishkin, Steve Vershnick with you as well. It's Monday Power Lunch on Lightning Power Play. This is Power Lunch exclusively on Lightning Power Play on the iHeartRadio app. We continue going over some of the items in the tentative agreement on the return to play portion of the deal between the NHL and the NHLPA, Dave Mishkin, Steve Versnick, putting it all together, and our special guest today to help us break it all down, of course, is Eric Erlinson from lightninginsider.com and also a regular contributor here on Lightning Power Play. All right, Eric, let's get back to it. So I wrote this down. Uh, this is during phase three. Prior to the charter flight to the hub city, each player will be tested three times, 48 hours apart in the seven days prior. So phase three originally was going to be two weeks when all is said and done, it may be slightly shorter than that time frame. But in the final seven days of phase three, every player will be tested three times, I presume, that will also account for the other members of the, the travel party. Mm-hmm. But I think that that's put in place to ensure best you can that when teams arrive in the hub city, everyone is at zero. Like everybody is yep. negative based on the level of testing that had happened in the week leading up to it. Because once they get to the hub city, testing will be done, as we mentioned, every single night. Yeah, again, the testing is down to it. And if it was me, I would have found a way to maybe try and isolate as many players as possible during phase three. You know, yeah. that's, that's when you want to start the bubble in my mind. I, we're not going to be there. Uh, they'll still be allowed to go home uh, as, it, as it will be. But there'll still be those same protocols that are in place now. They have to check in with their daily uh, symptoms. They have to report, in this case, to, to Tom Mulligan and, and Mike Poirier, who are the, the medical uh, staff with the lightning, they have to check in with them every day. This is my temperature when I woke up. I'm not feeling right. any symptoms. I can come in, you know. And the other thing too is, even in phase four, so we know phase two, we know phase three, and in phase four, throughout all these phases, players are required and staff, everybody is required to wear a mask at any point other than if they're working out or they're on the ice. And that's a key point too, um, you know. To, or in to, their room in the hotel. In there, yeah, for sure. You know, Anytime that, and, um, you know, that's that's part of keeping us all safe, too, uh, and trying to prevent any outbreaks or anything. Um, but, it, you know, when you get to phase three, that's training camp, that's going to be the key test. And what I found interesting when, you know, it was reported a couple of weeks ago that 11 players, including three with Tampa Bay, had reported uh, positive for 
COVID that they only shut it down for a few days. Not only did they that, they went from the sixth player to the twelfth player. Yeah. Now, now when we get to phase three, now we're talking thirty players, right? Now you're getting more players, and I wonder how they're going to handle the the um, practice sessions. Is it going to be all thirty players on the ice at one time? Are they going to break this up into two different sessions to kind of limit the number of people, uh, number of players on the ice? Um, but to me, again, making sure that the testing is there for everybody that's going to get on a plane, and if there's any concerns, if there's any uh, delay, they will delay the flight into Toronto or Edmonton. We know Tampa Bay will go to Toronto in this case, but um, you know, again, making sure that you're doing everything you can not to introduce it once you get to the secured zone. We had Derek Lalonde, one of the Lightning's assistant coaches, on with us a few weeks back, and he projected, and this is a few weeks ago, before a lot of this had been kind of etched in stone or pen on paper, indelible pen, but he kind of projected two groups of 14 players in each group, not including the goalies, obviously. So to the extent that they had talked about it, they being Lightning coaches two, three weeks ago, that was how they thought about running the camp. And they had the ice surface to do it. I mean, they could structure it in a way that you could easily have two separate yep. workouts with one group doing off-ice stuff and, and the other group being on the ice. But I guess we'll find out soon enough. All right, what happens if a player tests positive? And there's some things that we know. There's some things that we still don't know. But if a player tests positive in Phase 4, that player is isolated. Now, there is a distinction between a player who is asymptomatic with no symptoms and a player who has symptoms. The player must isolate for 14 days. If the player is asymptomatic, after 14 days, he can have two negative tests before he is allowed to rejoin his teammates. If a player has symptoms, he has to wait until the symptoms abate, which may coincide within that 14-day window and then have two negative tests. But whether you're asymptomatic or not, you still go through a litany of additional tests heart tests, echocardiograms, you're seeing a bunch of physicians to kind of assess where your health is at after coming through the virus and getting to the other side. And the other part of it, Eric, is whether you're asymptomatic or not, you're not allowed to work out at all during the 14 days that you're in quarantine. So understanding that if there is a positive test and the player comes through it fine, let's say it's you know just 14 days and hopefully is asymptomatic and feels fine other than his positive test, and he gets his two negative tests, I mean, being 14 days off the ice with no physical activity would be a setback for that player, would it not? Oh, for sure. I mean, we talk about how much it, it means for players just over Christmas break, which is three days, and, and what that means to them. Um, you know, now you could do some workouts in your room. That's not much for sure. There's not a whole lot you can do, but being, a, being away from the ice is, is huge. And, you know, if you have to, to sit out 10, 14 days uh, without being on the ice, it takes you a, a, a couple of days to kind of feel that again. I, I, you know, we've talked to plenty of players through the years that when they come back from these, these breaks and, you know, now we have this bi-week situation where players are off for about 10 days before they get back on the ice. 
Um, you know, it's a different feel, and and that could be something that a coach would have to sit back and 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 consider: well, is it better to put this player who's been maybe has a more prominent role on my team? who's been off for 14 days because they've had to isolate themselves compared to a player who's been in the lineup, um, maybe not as big of a contributor or as big of a role, but they're fresh, their legs are going, they're in the middle of it. Um, that, that, I mean, that could be a big difference. And, you know, and that's why, you know, a lot of people ask if there should be an asterisk next to whoever wins the Stanley Cup this year. Um, and my answer is absolutely not. And uh, somebody said if there's going to be an asterisk, it's going to be because this is the toughest tournament to win just based on everybody's on the level playing field in terms of how long they've been off and, and everything. And then how are you going to deal with these situations? If, you know, if your team is fortunate to come through it without any uh, issues, then you did a really good job as a team and as an organization to kind of keep it clear and to fight your way through it and to deal with that stuff. So, um, yeah, that would be a huge uh, situation if a player has to isolate for 14 days. And especially in this environment where they're talking about potentially playing games on back-to-back days where we don't typically see that in a postseason environment, uh, that could mean a round and a half just in 14 days if it gets to that. Now, are they talking about playing on back-to-back days? Because I was under the impression, at least early in the tournament, there are going to be enough teams there and you're going to have to get so many games in that it would be unlikely that teams would have to play on back-to-back days. With the exception of the teams that are in the round robin, one of those teams, if not two of those teams, might have to play on back-to-back days, just how the round robin works. But in a play-in series or a playoff series – you still think they would go back-to-back early in the process? That potential, I think, is there. Uh, We know that they want to start games on August the 1st, and then they're talking about the second-phase draft lottery for who's going to get the number one pick because of the way the initial draft lottery played out. They want to conduct that on August 10th. So that's nine days to get in a best-of-five series for everybody. Yeah. Um, So I think that potential is there. I also think once you get into the first and or second rounds of the actual playoffs, I think that that possibility is there as well, because there is a window to squeeze this in. They want all of this done by the end of October. I believe the date that was thrown around was November 1st for the start of free agency, which means there has to be a draft. Uh, most likely held, if not right before that, right around that time frame as well. So there is a window that this all has to fit into. And this just in the fact that everybody's going to be in the same city, I think, al- allows that opportunity that if, if there's a time crunch, um, you know, you could play games on back-to-back days. I, that's why I don't know what the schedule is going to be look like, but I, I would be surprised if there's not some flexibility in there as well, depending on how other series go, if you could play games or back. Because let's let's just say you get to, you know, round one and a team sweeps a team in four days, but the other one, two or three of them go best of seven, you know, you're going to, that's a lot of time. As we know, it takes about two weeks normally per series if they go seven games. Um, I I don't know if they want to do that this time around. I I think that with everybody in the same city, that it makes it a little bit easier to play on back-to-back nights to fit it into this window that they want to put it in. Well, and we also know that the teams that are playing in the round robin, and the Lightning are, in fact, one of those teams, they're only playing three games. So the round robin games will be over. They're going to know when those round robin games are over. So if any of the play-in series are extending past that time, then theoretically they could squeeze in game four and potentially game five in the play-in series to make sure that everybody is done (laughs) with that first series before whatever that date you gave, August 10th, as the date for 
the lottery to see who gets the number one overall pick. I want to go back to phase three because there were some components that I read that do deal with phase three. And you had mentioned this wasn't in the document, but this had been leaked maybe a week ago, which was a little surprising to to me, to Steve, to you, because I heard what you had said about expecting that phase three might be a quarantine type situation in a local hotel. It was not. And in fact, the players are going to be allowed to be at home. That did not come out in the news yesterday. But one thing that did that I did not know was going to be a part of this is players are going to have to take part in a pre-participation medical exam. And if after taking that exam, physicians determine that a player is at a substantial risk of serious illness, that player shall be deemed unfit to play and will not be allowed to play. Now, the player can get a second opinion on that, but that would be a decision taken out of the player's hands. If that player has, and you had mentioned a couple of players with diabetes, we know Anton Strawman has had a condition that affects his lungs that's treated with medicine, but we may see some players deemed ineligible before phase three even begins. Yeah, that one uh, was a little bit of a surprise that the the league and physicians could just say, no, you can't play because you're too high of a risk. And, um, you know, at, at, is there a point where you'd leave that up to the player? I mean, I think everybody by this point, uh, especially involved in this like they are, uh, is educated at least enough as you can be without being – you know, without my medical degree, I, I have a good feel for how this, this works, and I think the players would be in the same situation and and how they deal with it. But for, you know, for the league to come in and say, if you, if you are, and it's not even a physical, it's not even necessarily a physical situation, it's an at-risk physical situation if you have some issues. You know, we know some players have asthma as well. Yeah. Um, you know, so there are some players out there like that. And, and if they are deemed by the league, that'll be interesting to see because you can't get a second opinion. And what happens then if the second opinion says, no, no, they're they're fine. At what point do you leave it up to the player for the risk? I mean, um, it, it, I don't think it's it's too much different than any other situation. The players know the risk. It Look, they're at risk anytime they go out on the ice anyway. Um, you know, a little bit different in, in this situation, in this climate with, with, the, uh, with a pandemic going on. Um, but that one surprised me a little bit only because you wouldn't be leaving it up to the player. And maybe this is just a situation, too, where sometimes you have to save the player from themselves. If they are deemed too high of a risk in this situation, that it's better off that they don't play. Uh, but there, And there wouldn't be any penalties for it. You know, there wouldn't be anything other than, you know what, we don't want to put your health at risk, so we're going to tell you that it's best for you not to participate in that. I wonder how many will, will be in that category, but at least you know that that um, is there in writing if it comes to that situation. And again, I would think that there will be more than a handful of players that fall into that category. I'm not sure if this is reading it correctly, but my impression was that for the players who are already back in their home cities, and you mentioned the number when the league released that positive test number, of the players who have been participating in Phase 2 in their facilities, in their home cities, I kind of read that to mean that those players had already had this exam. 
Maybe not. But I certainly haven't heard of any players that have been ruled ineligible at this point. Yeah, um, because we know just just to be part of phase two, they all had to undergo medical testing anyway. Right. Right. Like they had to go through this process to begin with. And um, I don't know if this falls into that category. I'm not clear on, on how the language sits, but you're right. All these players that have participated in phase two, and it's all voluntary. Nobody was told they had to be there. Nobody was told they had to return home to participate in this um, voluntary phase two. But any, any player that did, there before it even started, you know, they started and the lightning started on a Tuesday. On that Monday, they all had to undergo this testing. And anybody new coming into it, you know, we know that players such as Blake Coleman and, and Pat Maroon and some others have been out of town who eventually have to kind of make their way back here to town if they're not here already. Once they do, they have to undergo this medical testing. So, um, but I, then I then I don't wonder. Again, I haven't read the language. Does, is a is a team medical official? Uh, in charge of that? Is there an independent review? Is there an independent that's in charge of making that decision? Um, you know, but but again, everybody is going to have to undergo it. Um, and uh, if they're deemed a risk, then they're deemed not eligible to play pending a second opinion. The other part that struck me about phase three that caused me to raise an eyebrow at least a little bit, <laughs> all players are going to be tested 48 hours prior to returning to the club facilities and every other day after that. The results will be made available within 24 hours, but they cannot return until they get a negative test. So, I mean, is it automatic that the test is returned within 24 hours? If your test happens not to come back for 36 hours, that means you cannot participate in a workout that day until you get a negative test. I guess I'm I'm operating under the assumption that whoever is whoever is administering these tests is giving as much of a guarantee as they can to the league that they can get the test back within 24 hours and in phase 4 it's going to be less than that because they're expecting to get the test back as I understand it the morning after they run the test the night before. But can you imagine if a player is sitting there waiting for a negative test it's been 24 hours. That test result has not yet come back in, and that player cannot participate in a workout. Yeah, and, and don't assume that you can get your test back in 24 hours because uh, we've seen uh, already in Major League Baseball, the Oakland A's have not gotten any of their test results back. Um, there was a team, I forget who it was, I just read it a little while ago, who called off their workouts today in Major League Baseball because they're still waiting on their test results, which you know were supposed to be done in 24 to 48 hours, and they still haven't got the results back. I, I, I mean, we know it. Um, that, you know, I, I know somebody who got tested for it because they were showing some symptoms. It took them uh, nine days to get the results back. And um, that's the general public. You would hope that in this situation, because of what's at stake, it, it wouldn't be uh, like that. But we'd be naive to think it can't be because uh, I think you're going to run into a situation where maybe the test results don't come back in a timely manner. And that's going to be, to me, if that happens right before teams leave for these bubble cities, that's the bigger issue uh, right. before they even get to these cities if they don't have their test results back. Because if they don't have it back, they're not going to be allowed to travel or fly until they get those results. Yeah, and that was the other point that I was making about the positive test results that I, I kind of skipped past, which I am unclear on. So... The Lightning have had some positive tests. Other teams have had positive tests. You've mentioned the Blues. 
What happens if a player is still testing positive, or maybe I should say it this way, is not yet tested negative after having tested positive when it's time for the team to leave and go to the hub city? Does that player still come? Is that player isolated on the plane and kept sequestered? Is that player left back in the home city until that player tests negative and then they find another way of getting that player to the hub city? But, I mean, even the the flight is locked down. Like, the players have to bring themselves to the airport. They can't take public transportation to get to the airplane. I'm just wondering, like, we do have some, some positive tests out there. What happens if it's time to go? It's the 26th of July or whatever the date is that – that the travel date of the hub cities is scheduled to take place and you still have some players testing positive. Then that those players don't travel with the team. Um, you know, I, I think we saw it again, trying to look at everything that major league baseball is doing. The Toronto blue Jays who train down the road here in Dunedin, half their team traveled yesterday. And some of the players that are waiting on results stayed behind and they'll have to join the team at a later date. Now they're just going up there for workouts. It's not game related. There's not, uh, a big time frame on them getting up there, but I would have to think it would work the same way yeah. with, with with hockey, that if you have a player who doesn't have the results back, and if they don't have the results, I think you have to assume it's, 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 it's a positive test, if nothing else. That has to be the assumption. If we don't know the result of it, you can't introduce it into this traveling party. And, you know, there's ways to get it done. There's private charters. There's private jets that could fly these players. Now you do have to wonder because you do have to cross the border for, you know, 26 of the teams. Uh, I don't know how many are, are in the uh, return to play, but the, all the other teams that have to f- cross the border into Canada, we know the restrictions that Canada has, and they are waiving this for the purpose of uh, bringing these players in to host these tournaments in, in Toronto and Edmonton. Um, but if, if, it, if you don't have the results back, you can't, you can't take the risk, right? It, everything is about limiting the risk and, and, and maintaining as low risk possibilities as you can. So if you don't have a test back to me, you can't come until we know for sure. A couple of other items that I jotted down. So if a player leaves with an excused absence, and again, this is going to phase four, as you had alluded to earlier, birth of a child, family emergency, whatever, that player is excused, leaves, comes back to the bubble. That player must sequester in his room for four days and must have four negative tests. So it's not the full two-week quarantine situation. So that is a little bit different than if a player tests positive, certainly. And much different if a player leaves without an excused absence, as we talked about earlier in the show. And the other is if you came in contact with a player who subsequently tested positive. Now we know that the common procedure is then isolate yourself for 14 days to be on the safe side, even if you're not showing any symptoms, if you had contact with somebody who tested positive. They're not going quite that far, Eric, but they are saying that player will be monitored closely. Yep. But I think that all things being equal, that player shouldn't have to miss any time, even if he was close to a player or somebody who tested positive. Well, and that's where the daily testing comes in as well. It, you can monitor and you can keep them isolated. And if you continue to get the negative tests back, then that's that's where you're going to base your information on. So uh, I, I think that's a, uh, um, a key point because it is a player who was inside the bubble. And yes, they would have to have gone outside and potentially expose themselves in a public situation of some manner. 
Um, but you can bring them back in and just monitor them and test. Again, daily testing, daily testing, daily testing. That is a huge undertaking that the league is doing yep. with the daily test. And, and you know, I, I know that back when they introduced this back in May and, and listening to Gary Bettman and Bill Daly, they, they talked about the massive amount of tests that they were going to have to do. That's going to cost the league in excess of $5 million to do these tests for all, all these individuals uh, on a daily basis. So um, it, it all, to me, this whole thing centers around the testing parameters and what the league was going to do. And again, have to praise both sides here for the job they have done negotiating this to kind of um, put a uh, something in place for any potential scenario. I mean, they have really covered every potential base that you can think of in a situation to make sure it's a safe environment. And that includes this to where if a player leaves, they are allowed to come back. Because I know that was a big concern for the players. What happens, you know, they're going to be away from their families for a long period of time, we know. Uh, if they have to leave, could they come back? That has been addressed. Uh, even the families coming to join the players, that has been addressed. We know that the, the families can join the teams uh, and, and, you know, um, uh, for the conference finals and the Stanley Cup final, uh, which we know is going to be hosted in Edmonton at this point. Um, you know, so again, all that stuff has been addressed. It's been discussed, and they have a plan in place for almost any foreseeable scenario that could take place. Well, you just praised them, Eric, deservedly so, because this return to play agreement is no small feat, but they have another rather large nut still to crack or maybe to to put one more bow on the other box here, which is the CBA extension. And while we have heard that they are very close to an agreement on the CBA extension, that has not yet been accomplished. What does your gut tell you about how long this is going to take? Could we see that agreement today, or do you think it's going to get pushed later into the week? I, I think there's a good chance if we don't see it by the end of the day today that by tomorrow this uh, memorandum of understanding, which is the next step that has to take place, is, is finalized and agreed upon, and then it becomes binding, and then they put all the legal language in after there. But they'll all vote, and they'll all discuss off this um, operation of understanding moving forward. I, I think it's, you're going to see it here, if not later today, then, then by tomorrow. And then once that happens, they can um, go back to their representatives, in this case with the league, the Board of Governors, and, and the NHLPA with uh, their executive board, as well as the, the team reps in this case, and then they can go back to, their, to the players. And then the voting process will start. I, I, I think it will probably take 24 to 48 hours for – the voting process to begin and then it could take up to three days for that voting process to be completed because it's 700 plus players that they're going to have to vote on it's all 31 teams it's not just the 24 because it is tied in with the cba and again praising the league for what they've done for this return to play i think you have to give the league and the players association a ton of credit for also finding a way to negotiate a new cba yeah. in this environment because this is a league that we know has had its share of labor issues over the past 20-plus years, uh, including a lost season over labor negotiations, that they found a way to find an, to extend six years of labor peace in this environment and addressed the key components for the players. One was the Olympic participation, and the other one is the escrow. We know that this year there's a huge escrow. It's, it's about 20%. The players were looking for a cap on escrow. And they found a way for that to happen. I think after next year, the cap uh, on the escrow is about seven to eight percent. 
withheld from their paychecks, and that was a big sticking point. And they found a way, and where we don't even know what the economic environment is going to be for the league moving forward once we get on the other side of this, how fast can they get back to the projected revenues? We know the cap is going to remain flat at $81.5 million until league revenues get back to $4.8 billion, which is what it was, they were projecting heading into the next season, which would have brought the cap up. So to be able to negotiate all of this, the, the return to play and a new CBA in this environment, I think is just an incredible job on both sides. Well, Eric, we filled an hour just talking about return to play. We could probably Amazing. do another hour on the CBA extension when the details <laughs> yep. of that, although a lot of them have been released already, frankly, and, and we were discussing it last week. But we're definitely going to have you back on to break down some of the particulars of the CBA extension, which you alluded to rather quickly but succinctly also with the, the escrow and the Olympic participation, which was really important for the players and the Players Association how the cap is going to be flat and how that might affect teams like the Lightning that are already close to or at the salary cap in terms of fielding a team and, and bringing back players for next year. But great job, Eric. Thanks for helping me kind of break all this down for the fans, and uh, we'll talk to you real soon. Uh, thanks, Dave. I appreciate it. It was a good time. I look forward to coming back on again. All right, that'll do it for this Monday Power Lunch. Thanks to Steve Ersnick. Thanks to Eric Erlinson. I'm Nave Mishkin. Talk to you tomorrow, everybody.